the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Kathleen Rogers, President and CEO of the Earth Day Network, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. April 22nd of next year will mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Started in 1970, it predates the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. Much has occurred over those 50 years, but next year's milestone is critical as organizers look to see that the environment and climate become a higher priority with citizens across the world, particularly when it comes time to vote. And here with us this evening is the leader of all those organizers, Kathleen Rogers, the president and CEO of the Earth Day Network. Good evening, Kathleen, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening. Thank you for having me. So take us back 50 years, if you would. Uh, How did Earth Day get started and who was behind it? So it's a relatively long story. Uh, Gaylord Nelson, who was a freshman senator from Wisconsin, uh, had long been interested in the environment, dating back to 1963. He actually went on a tour with President Kennedy to show him some of the desecration of public lands and some other issues. And then as we move towards 1970, where Mm -hmm. there was a huge amount of unrest around the Vietnam War, civil rights movement, And students became extremely active in the environment, and Gaylord came up with an idea to hold an environmental teach-in around campuses, and that had been done for a few years previously, but had really taken off as a way for students to become engaged with each other. And he hired a young guy named Dennis Hayes, who took that teach-in concept, turned it into Earth Day, and the rest is uh, a legend. He brought 20 million people out into the streets, which was over 10% of the U.S. population. And it scared a lot of people, including who, the president of the time, who was relatively paranoid, as we know, Richard Nixon, who then responded in a way, I think quite admirably, and created the EPA yeah. soon after Earth Day. Uh, if you listen to the tapes of the great newscasters of the day, including Walter Cronkite, and it's on our website if you want to listen to it, it's almost reverential. That 20 million people on the streets represents the largest civic engagement day in human history. Mm. It's never been repeated. Of course, we hope to in 2020. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, but And then some. <laughs> it is. And so it's it was quite extraordinary. What happened was he created the EPA in three months. And because there was such a thing as bipartisan anything in our Congress, we went through what can only be described as almost a 10-year honeymoon where Republicans and Democrats, independents of the time, got together and passed some of the most um, aggressive, broad environmental legislation in the world. Mm -hmm. In fact, not matched by anywhere in the world. Many of our laws that we created were exported then to other countries. And they included, of course, the Endangered Species Act, uh, Clean Air Act and some of the other great environmental laws and other environmental laws that were on the books, like clean water, were dramatically improved. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing about Earth Day that is really important to remember is that Earth Day is the bright line that was crossed that day, was the difference between the old environmental movement, which was about conservation and biodiversity, maybe so you could shoot them, 
national parks, and it became about human health and development because yep. 150 years of industrial development had left an incredible legacy. And so that history of changing from conservation and biodiversity, all critically important issues, but really engaging people in their health really struck a chord. So it wasn't just students out there. It was moms, pops, kids, religious leaders, and suits. More important, it was middle-class working bloke uh, from all over the United States. New York City was shut down, and mm-hmm. the photos are remarkable. It's Everybody's wearing a suit. So it was a broad cross-section, and it was aided in the most amazing way, by perfect weather all the way across the United States. <laughs> well, that's great. April showers and all of that just didn't happen that yeah. day. Yeah, why, why is it April 22nd? Any significance to that? Well, I think they were looking for um, a day during the week. I think it was a Tuesday in 1970. Okay. And they were looking for a day during the week because it was very much conceived of as a teach-in. Mm-hmm. It was sort of at the end of school classes but before exams. And so they specifically picked that to engage students before they were caught up in the nightmare of final exams. And it actually worked really well. Yeah, it um, does. So it continues, of course. We never changed the date. No. Um, I arrived at Earth Day 16 years ago. And so um, it, it remains a critical day. In, in 2020, it will be on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So we've Got that same sort of dynamic well, that's going. That's cool. That's cool. And it's also, I think, probably uh, after Passover and Easter. So you yeah, don't have a religious holiday, that, those, too. Those are movable feasts. Yeah, yeah. So we've had a couple of Earth Days that were either uh, on or around Passover. Oh, yeah. Uh, the luck of the calendar. And so we, of course, checked in uh, a few, many years ago um, to see when the 50th anniversary fell. And thankfully, we're not involved in Super. either one. Well, the Earth Day Network is the organization that came out of that first Earth Day. Earth Day. What is your charge and mission? Well, it's really interesting. Before I got there, it had a very different mission. It went global in 1990, way before my time. And I came to the organization with a, a an explicit, direct ask of the board of directors, including Dennis Hayes and Gaylord, uh, which is that I was deeply concerned about the environmental movement when I had been at previous environmental organizations – I had been involved in sort of a census of the environmental movement and who and what we are, and it was largely old and very, almost 100% white. And so when I went to Earth Day, I went to the board and said, I'll take this job. Of course, I really wanted it. Uh, I'll take this job. Find your poker. If <laughs> Poker face, exactly. If you'll change the mission to the following, which is to diversify, educate, and activate the environmental movement worldwide. And that's what we do. Mm-hmm. We used Uh, We use and have used Earth Day as a major entry point into the environmental movement. It's a great stepping stone, uh, but we've worked year-round since the late 80s on issues such as, well, now plastics, biodiversity, climate and environmental education, which is near and dear to the mission of Earth Day, and a few other issues. So we're both year-round, but we spend a huge amount of time looking for groups, seeking organizations um, that will be engaged. And we work with everything from corporations to evangelicals to mayors and local elected officials, um, just about every segment, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, you name it, we're there. The Red Cross, all of these groups are critically important. And increasingly, we're finding it easier and easier to draw them in even groups that aren't involved in the environment directly, to draw them into this conversation because of climate change. Everybody's concerned. Everybody's on board, give or take a few people. And so it's it's become easier and easier to make the um, – to paint a picture of taking part in Earth Day and then Earth Day Every Day, another expression we created, and moving down that trajectory of actual activism. Those mm-hmm. things are different. Volunteerism is awesome, but if we can move them away from – 
the cleanups, planting trees into voting and working with their uh, local electeds, all the better. Yeah, policy is everything. In addition to some of that legislation you spoke about in the 1970s, what are some of the notable successes of the Earth Day movement? Well, I think, again, if you have now a billion people participating That's in a pretty Day, good success, yeah. And our goal is not just to have them do Earth Day, but to pass them on into other environmental groups or other social uh, social groups. So it's it's not our goal to have them step it up and step away. Mm-hmm. So we're a big part of our accomplishment has been feeding them into the broader environmental movement. As I said, it's not just the 20 or so groups with budgets over $100 million that we're interested in. Our MO, our focus is community building. So all of those people that participate in Earth Day are asked to join local community groups, to join medium-sized groups, because that's really where the action is. Yeah. I've always been curious about this, but as you know, historically elections do not turn on environmental issues. And if you look at all the polls, climate and environment are really near the top. However, it doesn't translate when people step into the uh, into the voters' booth. What's a a reason for that? So let's distinguish between voting for a candidate who's strong on climate and voting for initiatives. Mm -hmm. Initiatives. So if you have a a green bond initiative, a parks initiative, they pass like that because people see the benefit to themselves. So in a sense, they are voting for the environment all the time in states with initiatives or where they have to vote on specific issues. When it comes to picking your local candidate or your um, national candidate, and that includes everybody in between. You're right. It's There are immediate concerns that we all have, myself included, around education, jobs, now immigration. And, and so guns. There are, and guns. <laughs> and there are all these issues right, left, and center that take that long-term thing, even if it's it's equal. I can tell you the people of Flint, Michigan, and some of the other places that have experienced extraordinary environmental damage and also, a complete lack of both responsibility and caring by mm-hmm. local officials. Those guys aren't there anymore. So, But on the other hand, I just saw an interview with people from Sandy, and it was extraordinary. They interviewed a bunch of people from Staten Island, some other places, all of whom were conservative people. And they all rejected the idea that Sandy was part of a greater pattern of climate events. So even if it happens to you personally, mm. you might not believe it, or you might want to, for a bunch of reasons, human psychology, anxiety, whatever it is, to just move away from the idea that you really matter to the next person who's representing you. And so we're finding it. So in other words, if we're expecting everyone in the world to experience climate change in order to change their minds, we might not be that far off. But on the other hand, even when they do, they're not voting. So I think it looks, they, people look at the candidates overall. Mm-hmm. As you know, 80, 90 percent of the people make up their mind long before the debates start, long <laughs> before the primaries. And so you're dealing with a sl- small segment of society that are good wafflers. I, I mean, they're good. They're people that actually haven't made up their mind. And are listening to, to, to the arguments. Yeah. yeah, they're listening to the arguments. And those are the people that really matter. The second point, so you have a small group of people that really matter mm-hmm. in a small number of states. I'm not saying everybody doesn't matter, but I'm saying the politically active states and all the money is pouring in to getting that, let's call it a handful of voters to change, but skipping who's voting more important, who's not voting. Mm. And so the other side of that coin is not just targeting 
uh, undecided voters. It's getting people out to vote. We've had two major years of a very disruptive president, for better or worse, very disruptive. And so people are not unaware of the changes that have been promoted over the last couple of years. You would think the 2018 voting would be astronomically high. And for a couple of demographics, it was higher than normal. But for other groups, youth, other people, it picked up a little, but less than, just le- a little bit less than 30% of youth, broadly defined, it's actually a huge group of people, uh, voted, yeah. even in a very politically active year. So we all, depends, regardless of where you're coming from, have a huge job to turn out people. Well, speaking of that disruptive president, he pulled the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, which I believe was signed on Earth Day back in 2016. What has been the impact of that, and are you seeing other nations following down the same path? That's a really good question. So technically, he hasn't withdrawn. Right. He it said takes he's years. going to withdraw. Right. It takes a year yep. and plus, plus, and he has mm-hmm. to fill out a bunch of forms. Yep. So we're waiting to see if they actually fill out those forms. Um, I think you're right that um, it has dramatically influenced the conversation. It, there are a bunch of things that happen. It's not just political leaders. It's also what I call certainty in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. If you have a president or leaders generally that are gung-ho – Let's say cars in the 1800s or 1900s. They're going to put a ton of emphasis on those technologies and create a pathway and media strategy and everything to get people to adopt new technologies. Seatbelts, whatever it is, people are driven not just by the availability of cool technologies and by benefits to their pocketbook, but also by what governments are doing to promote modern life and exchange from the old way to the new way. The green technology will dwarf regular technology. What's going on in energy is so big compared to computers, cell phones, that this is a bonanza for whoever gets it together globally. Right. You're a big fan of the Industrial Revolution, I know, and you see parallels. I guess you have family history with that. Family history, and I also have done a ton of research. Can I tell you a quick story about Studebaker? Remember Studebaker? Okay, so I was doing a bunch of research because I can't stop on this topic, and I found the minutes of a Studebaker meeting, a board of directors meeting, but... The head of Studebaker Company, whose name was Studebaker, Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other people called together all of the horse and buggy makers in the late 1800s. Studebaker made horse and buggies. And they called them all together and said in the minutes of this meeting, um, you know, we really think we need to move in the direction of cars. And the rest of the, the majority of the rest of the buggy makers were, nah, Mm -hmm. let's not worry about it. And so they walked away. These were giants in their industries. It wasn't just Studebaker. So Studebaker, at the end of the meeting, voted to move forward with cars and uh, buggies in parallel, but put more into into cars, and the rest of them were history over a very short period of time. It's those companies that are looking down the road and saying, you know, it's inevitable. Yeah. The problem is whether you're talking about plastics or you're talking about energy efficiency, it's everybody's interest in the corporate community, for the most part, to drag their feet to keep the status quo. And what's happening with this administration and with other parts of the world is they're allowing them to do so. They're not showing that we're headed in this direction, get on board, make it happen. I mean, I can't tell you stories about my relatives from Iowa who talked about how insane it seemed to them when people from the county came to call, rural Iowa, uh, let's bring your toilets inside and do plumbing. Let's mm. bring that outhouse inside. And their reaction was, I remember my great, my grandmother telling me this, was, 
what an insanely stupid idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, somewhat how's it disgusting work? to tell somewhat you the disgusting. truth. <laughs> yeah. And so, nonetheless, the county people came and said, "We're putting in pipes and we're putting in central systems, and we can't have this polluting the groundwater, et cetera, et cetera." But they actually needed some convincing. That's the role of government to yeah. figure out the technologies, make it cool, make it interesting. I'll give you one last one: the seatbelt industry. I mean, the car industry fought seatbelts like there's no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. The car industry was adamantly opposed to seatbelts. They spent the equivalent $2019 of millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars fighting seatbelts. Now what do they do? They sell safety. It's just this happens. It's human nature. It's the same thing all the time, repeating itself over and over and over again. People like the status quo. They don't want change. doesn't matter if they're Trump voters or anybody else. You have to move them, enlighten them, energize them, make them optimistic. And that's the role of Earth Day, mm-hmm. government leaders, and people in my community. Wasn't it Henry Ford who said that if you polled the public, what they would have wanted was not a car but faster horses? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing Studebaker said. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's stick with companies. Um, who are some of your partners? Well, we're very cautious about uh, corporations that we work with. Yeah. Um, and so some groups, some companies we work with on substantive issues. In other words, advising them on what they should be doing to improve their record. Now, truthfully, they don't need me. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't need the environmental community. Sometimes they just need, instead of technology information, or uh, they need ideas on how to sell it to the people that buy their products or invest in them or whatever the role of it is. And so that's a critical role that everybody needs to play. But we are really concerned about companies and focused on companies that will make commitments, that will take it, give us some additionality. Mm -hmm. So if a company like, pick it, Apple says, well, we're going to go 80% renewable energy. Our goal is to make it 100% renewable energy. In fact, that's the trajectory of a lot of big tech companies, but not all are on. And so we're using the 50th anniversary as a stage, a platform to get companies to recognize that we need to stop screwing around, we need additionality, we need broader, better commitments, and then the rest of us, not just the environmental community, the evangelicals, uh, the Boy Scouts, everybody will get behind them. And that's the role of consumer groups, the role of the environmental community, is put our money on the companies that are going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the 50th anniversary in 2020. And one of the things you've done, and I'm sure a lot of these things are in development at the moment, but you have wonderful partnerships with the arts Tell us the role they've played traditionally in Earth Day and maybe some of the things that we can look forward to come next April. Well, I think the important thing about the arts, if you want to change culture, you have to use culture. Yeah. And I've operated under that for a long time. And so we really Touch is a different part of the brain. It's a different part of the brain. But it also influences culture. We all know that from watching the insane TV shows that we watch. (laughs) I mean, really? Uh, We're influenced by this. Now, maybe it doesn't change what car I'm going to buy or if I'm going to walk to work as opposed to drive one. But they're very influential. So the Arts for the Earth campaign is focused on bringing everybody. That's everything from ballet to museums to architects, artists, poets, you name it, into this move as cartoonists. A couple of years ago, we were through Dennis Hayes, who's Mm -hmm. the chair of the board. He was able to get four or 500 cartoonists worldwide to create cartoons um, all around the same time, related to Earth Day or the environment during the month that. of April. It was really awesome. Yeah. I mean, people really responded. But we're taking this to a 
much higher, much more intense level. Some of the stuff we're doing is kind of secret, and some <laughs> of the things are really obvious. We're in a partnership with Smithsonian. All of their 17 museums and zoos will be doing a major Earth Day activity, but we also have hundreds of other museums either signed up or about to be signed up to do exhibit. We have people, orchestras that are playing 24 hours around Earth Day from all over the world, Sweet. commissioning new works, poets that are writing poetry, uh, ballets that will be commissioned. It's a long list of artists um, that are getting engaged and super excited about what we're doing. Another thing you're doing is the Earth Science 2020 Challenge. This has to do with citizen scientists. Tell us how that's going to work. Yeah, so I think the thing I said at the beginning, which was that Earth Day is that bright line that was crossed that um, where science drove Earth Day. Right. Yes, you had the Vietnam War. Yes, you had all these social movements, but you had science. You had hardcore science about what was going wrong with industrial pollution. And they were everything from birth defects to rivers on fire, uh, lung diseases, you name it. They were growing, growing evidence. Of course, Rachel Carson preceded Mm -hmm. all of this with her DDT story. Uh, which was very real and impacting people. Lead and gasoline is becoming an issue. And so um, so that's our science history. And if you look at any of the historical references and a lot of the books about Earth Day, they're all talking about the scientists drove this. And I firmly believe that's true, although I wasn't there. And so we looked at that a couple of years ago. And on Earth Day two years ago, I think yes, we did March for Science. Mm-hmm. And March for Science was dedicated to convincing people around the world that they should be super interested in both they had to believe in science they had to support science um, and they had to really care about the outcomes from a science perspective and so increasingly it became clear to us even before march for science that what we needed to do is go back to our roots so we went to a bunch of groups and honestly this was developed on the back of an envelope in a restaurant in delhi with the state (laughs) department and we had um, a discussion about Yes, there are 20, 30, 40, maybe more million scientists operating in the environmental field. But what they needed more than anything was citizens to do some of that work for them. They can't be everywhere. They don't have all the money. And obviously the world has long relied on citizen scientists to um, support what you know prof- paid professionals are doing. So we enlisted a bunch of groups, the Wilson Center, State Department, mm-hmm. European Space Agency, NASA, NOAA, Smithsonian, they're all helping in different ways. UNEP, UN Environment Program, now UN Environment. And we have a giant list. It's literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of groups. And what we're going to do is build the largest citizen science database in the world. It'll be all open data, and it will involve both aggregating existing citizen science from around the world Mm -hmm. in air, plastics, water, a bunch of things, a bunch of different areas, aggregating what's out there because none of these people talk to each other they're all in silos some of their citizen science is in that i know excel spreadsheets Mm -hmm. it's completely crazy so we've been we've spent the last couple of years with super great citizen scientists great woman from ann bowser from wilson center lana van dyke from state building relationships with citizen science groups and so the first step is to aggregate everybody's citizen science we have to put it through ai in order for those excel spreadsheets to talk to more sophisticated Mm -hmm. things layer it all up put it through ai again and then we're developing apps applications that will allow ordinary citizens to get engaged we hope to have about 50 million people download these apps over the course of four five six months and take photos of plastics pollinators air pollution, water pollution, and upload this data. They're being developed in conjunction with lots of scientists 
and some big tech companies to help us develop these really great apps. Take a picture of plastics under certain circumstances. It'll give you a ton of data. And so all of those apps will be uploaded with the same existing citizen science into one giant platform that's being developed by Esri, which is a giant mm-hmm. company that does mapping. They're awesome, and they've given a huge amount of this to free for free. Some of it's being hosted on Amazon, and we're very grateful to them for all the work they've put into this and money. And lots of other companies, big tech companies, are going to be promoting it. So we're super hope, hoping that um, by the end of May or June, we'll have a billion data points. It'll soon, probably the end of 2020, I'm hoping, pass away from Earth Day Network into some giant consortium of citizen science groups mm-hmm. because we're there to promote it um, Push it along. As you said, the front of the funnel, just like people getting involved in the environmental movement. Exactly. Use it. But our so let me tell you one last thing, which is really awesome. When you upload your app, uh, you download your app, you take the picture, you upload the photo, you're going to get a pop up, Mm -hmm. and it's going to tell you, click here to send a letter to, depending on the country, let's say Tanzania, click here to send a letter to um, your government. Uh, to tell them to do something about single-use plastics. Let's say they use the plastics Call out. to action. Yeah. yeah. So if we can get another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million actions out of people, directing them in their own language to their own countries, it'll really help, I think, build the environmental movement because you connect science with action and then civic engagement. Yeah. And so that's the trajectory. It's been a couple years in the making. Uh, we're all ripping our hairs out, hair out trying to get this going. Yeah, but it's very we're, exciting. We're down to the app development phase, and it's moving along really well. Yeah, you know, I had the pleasure of uh, working at the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation, oh, and there wow. is something about when people are part of something. You know, when they gave their pennies at school or whatever, they feel that they are, they are an owner. Exactly. So aside from all the practical information that's going to come and help the science community and the environmental community, I feel like I'm part of the 50th having done that. That is absolutely great. Tell us, um, what are the keys to building a movement, and what do you know now that you wish you knew 16 years ago about building a movement when you started? Well, um, I had come from a big group uh, that, you know, sort of a command and control. They all are, um, and that's my background. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went through an evolution where I really believe that the problem with the environmental communities, A, we just talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, B, you have super rich corporations that depend on nonstop fundraising and this insatiable need for cash to keep doing the good work they're doing. But it's tiny. It's yeah. a small, small group of people that are worth billions of dollars. And so I believed, and that was part of changing the mission, that it needed to go on, and I still believe it needs to go on at the community level to be authentic, whether it's voter registration or whether it's citizen science, whatever it is, environmental action, it has to be tied as a first step absolutely to community groups. And they're starving for money. Yeah. And some of them you know, are not 100% great. Some of them don't have the kind of corporate structures that make them make donors comfortable. Uh, but we've been in the business of giving money to community groups for a long, long time. And we know, because we're in 192 countries, yes, it gets screwed up once in a while. For the most part, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. We have to be tough um, when we're giving away our money. But we always tie it to performance standards. But honestly, it's so rare that they don't rise to the occasion. And if you have community engagement, then you're going to have success. And so that's our, our entire 
um, point of view. And so we really believe that that's the way to go, not continue to build a handful of big groups, even though they do good work, Mm -hmm. because we haven't built a broad enough movement. And that's the problem now. It's not that we don't have great lawyers and great legislators and great regulators in both the environmental community and in the science community. So we don't have anybody behind us. Yeah. So you've got to put your money where your mouth is and invest in community groups, and that's what we do. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I had a similar conversation with somebody in the international development and humanitarian field. I bet they and feel the same way. They feel the same way because they, they know that most owners are afraid of making a mistake because it's going to reflect badly on them. But they also know that the, all the great work is being done by these local groups, but they can't get money because they don't have a five-year history or whatever the case may be. Right. But you have to be afraid to make a mistake because most of them are doing the kind of work that nobody else is doing and getting incredible results. Well, let me close with this, Kathleen. What do you hope will come out of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which is quite unlike anything that has happened in the previous 49? Well, I think... First of all, we didn't talk about this, but we are, we have decided and we're being led, being led by the youth groups that mm-hmm. are going to be striking in New York in a couple of days. We really believe that there has to be a day of civic action on Earth Day, which is a Wednesday, April 22nd. And so we are slowly but surely putting together a campaign called Earthrise, which we hope will bring out millions of people the way Dennis and Gaylord did in 1970. And at least demonstrate to global leaders that there's more than a couple hundred thousand people behind them, that this is broad, diverse, everywhere. And so our big goal for 2020 is to, yes, we're in love with Earth Challenge. We have something called the Great Global Cleanup. We hope to have 100 million people doing cleanups. All those stepping stones. But in the end of the day, two things matter. Demonstrating and voting. And both of those things are key to Earth Day 2020 and what we'll be focusing on. Well, Kathleen Rogers, the president and CEO of Earth of the Earth Day Network, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. What do you want people to do today, and what do they need to do to get ready for April 22 of two, uh, 2020? Volunteer, sign up, register to vote, register others, and get ready for April 22nd. Thanks, Kathleen. It was great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.